Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for May 2016. I am writer, hyphen, campaign chaser Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Film activist, hyphen, wandering troubadour Sophie Mayer and our very special guest this month is... Me, I'm Alice Lowe. I'm an actress, hyphen, writer, hyphen, director. Very cool. So at least we, we have one person with a proper job on the show. About, about time. <laughs> Am I supposed to say, make something up? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to do this every month. So <laughs> I've, And I, I've failed to be employed for as long as Lee and I have been doing this. So. <laughs> yeah, if we were employed, we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> Good point. Now, uh, the films of, uh, of May, uh, why don't we kick off with Captain America Civil War. I am absolutely positive that there are many people, many, many of our listeners who are so steeped in film news and film criticism and uh, who are subsequently sick of the Civil War versus Batman v Superman comparison. Uh, but if you get outside that bubble a little, there's still a lot to talk about. I don't think it's insignificant that there are two rival comic book franchises that have each put out a film in which a mortal billionaire and a superpowered boy scout traditionally allies face off on ideological differences. What's surprising for me uh, is Donald Trump. Hey, yeah, sorry, <laughs> it's, ha- <laughs> that it's happening Donald in real Trump life hay as well. Fever is really terrible this year. But yeah, I think the the gaping chasm of quality uh, between these two two films. If you remember my rant from two months ago, I kind of feel the opposite about Civil War. It was weird in the way that it. Uh, presented both sides as ha- having valid, uh, valid beliefs and uh, and clear, clear ideological differences. The characters I found funny and interesting and varied. There was actual emotion. There was comprehensible action, and uh, and there were jokes. So um, I, it's safe to say I enjoyed this one a hell of a lot more than the other one. I thought it was a great trailer for Black Panther. <laughs> I may have slept through the rest of it. Right. Right. I thought it, I thought it had highlights, um, but those highlights were Black Panther, Ant Man, and Spider Man, mm-hmm. and it for me it said a lot that it was just treading water with the core characters, but when it was bringing in the cameos, it was really lively. It was funny. It was snap crackle. You know, the big fight at the airport where you've got all of the characters playing off against each other was great. But the billionaire versus Boy Scout sort of face posturing, um, it went on for about 42 weeks. (laughs) But I'm really excited for Black Panther. So obviously there is something that Marvel is doing right that is still catching my interest. Very weird that a film with five female characters failed to pass the Bechdel test. It was like (laughs) it was specifically constructed to have them all but never let them have a scene together, which... Mm -hmm. I thought it was quite weird. Um, I am enjoying Give Captain America a Boyfriend on Twitter because he does already have one or two. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, got, I've got to say, I've got to say, I'm not on. I don't think he should. Uh, they should hook him up with Bucky. I think he should be hooked up with the Falcon. Um, I'm all for the boyfriend thing. Just pick the Ooh, right one. It's yeah. got to be Sam Wilson. Come on. Yeah, and that jealousy was palpable. That was an interesting. Mm sort of aspect of the movie of all these boys being jealous of all the boys friendships with the other boys yeah <laughs> but <laughs> i did honestly that each other 
<laughs> that ending, like I did, uh, I know I know it's quite silly to say the ending of a comic book movie packed an emotional punch, so I, I, I won't say that. I'll just sort of imply it through, you know, winks. But um, but I, I got I got to say that last sequence did not go where I was expecting it would, and I kind of like that, you know, Cap was kind of who's kind of this, you know, idealized, always does the right thing character. Clearly, kind of did the wrong thing, but for the right reasons, and you know, I felt the conflict there. Yeah, I mean, the whole, I mean, it's a comic, comic book movie, so I don't want to blah, 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 ideological mm. thing it too much. But it did remind me of 13 Hours in terms of this championing of extra state activity. Mm. You know, the state is bad and wrong. We shouldn't have any oversight or laws. And we should support basically private contractors who go beyond the law in disputed territory. And... I think that's quite a dark aspect of what's coming out of American cinema at the moment is this championing, and we'll see this again with, with Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, of mm. sort of mercenary bad behaviour in war zones. Yeah. Although, to be fair, Captain America Civil War did not score any of that to Harry Nelson's Without You. Big, big mistake. Big mistake. Not sure what that <laughs> is, but I'm going to go with you on it. <laughs> Okay, I'll just lay that in. I'm just laying that in. So it feels like a complete flip to go from that to um, Mustang, mm -hmm. but I'm going to make a claim that it's a superhero film, it's a heist film, but it's about a girl gang instead of a boy gang, and they get to do stuff that girls in films don't usually get to do. They There's a car chase and there's siege with guns that's like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. Um, and I think, I don't know, Alice, if you felt that, but like a lot of the reviews have been, oh, it's just girls in their pants lying around. <laughs> and, you know, let's have a picture of girls in their pants lying around. And the film totally subverts that. Yeah, I, it's funny saying it's like, um, yeah, there's a siege element to it. And I suppose the girls lying around in their pants, it reminded me a bit of the Virgin Su Suicides, just yeah. in terms of visually. And most of what... What I really enjoyed about it actually was like the downtime when the girls were kind of like really messing around and just female friendships. It's not even friendships, it's sibling relationships, which you don't see. You see a lot of sort of depictions of boys like messing around and fighting each other. Mm. And you, you, you think that that's like a brother's relationship, but actually the play fighting and stuff they were doing, it really reminded me of me and my sister. And I was like, oh, that's really refreshing to me. I don't, haven't seen that on screen. You know, you're used to seeing like Jane Austen style sisters that are all kind of really, oh, sister, how are, are you? Mm. <laughs> that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I like that they r really were horrible to each other and called each other fat. And, you know, like that sort of sibling bitching that goes on, really, I really enjoyed that. And I really appreciated that it was... I kind of knew what was going to come. I knew what was going to happen in a way. Yeah. Um, because of the title of the film and et cetera. I don't want to give, give it away. But yeah, I could have had a bit more character stuff, actually. That was what my feeling was when I watched it. I was like, I kind of want, wanted to know why certain characters did certain things. Because mm. there were so many characters, <laughs> there's yeah. five sisters. It's like you didn't. I could have had half an hour more of the film in a way, which I don't often say because I quite like it when a film is an hour and a half and then, you know, mm. you're done and you know what you're getting. 
but I was a bit like I, I wanted to know a little bit more about each of the characters individually and and why they reacted in the different ways to the situation that they were put under. I did sort of, uh, as you say, you can sort of expect a lot of how it's going to unfold because you've got so many different girls in the same situation and so for, just for the sense of drama you're going to have them all react differently to, to the oppression they're faced with. Um, so, yeah, a bit, mm. a bit more motivation to sort of ra- rather than just sort of expecting them to go into those down those paths. Um, but I did, uh, I mean, it's such a beautiful film and avoids, I guess, the, the tendency towards showy bleakness a lot of films mm. will sometimes rely on in place of drama. This film is very, very funny for, for a, you know, a film about women being oppressed, um, you know, in this in this society, it's, it's actually really, really funny. And, and I think that sense of joy is what made it feel, I guess, more, more uh, I don't know, realistic? Is that the word I want? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it's not a sort of misery homework. Sometimes I say that some films are homework films. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like someone goes, oh, there's this film, it's really, really good, and it's about this political situation and blah, blah, blah. And you say, oh, great, yeah, I'm sure it's amazing. <laughs> but it feels like homework. Yeah. <laughs> and so inevitably you put off watching it because you think, oh, God, it's going to be like quite, you know, involved. And and this isn't a homework film at all. It's just fun. It's really, really good. And, yeah, it sort of redefines what preconceptions might be about a heroine. And yeah, I really appreciated that it is about action. It's very much about, they're very proactive, these girls. Like, I especially loved it when they went to the football match. It was mm. really cool. And yeah, as you say, that moment, feeling of joy. It's not a miserable film in any way. It's not a sort of um, plaintive kind of lament. It's kind of very positive and uplifting, I suppose. Mm. I think it's really upsetting saying that that's her first film oh really just i don't don't know anything about the filmmaker just because it's it feels like such a complete vision that Mm -hmm. to have made that straight out of film school with one of her film school buddies alice winnacle co-wrote the screenplay with her um Mm -hmm. that feels like a massive achievement and obviously she's had a ton of pressure put on it which you wouldn't expect for a first feature like oh a ton of Chazar nominations and an Oscar nomination and she's it just feels like the film is worth that and it's kind of survived that unnatural pressure mm. and gone out there and and is finding audiences and she, uh Dennis Ganser Ogafen who's the director has just set up her second film which is the first film she wanted to write uh, a drama set during the LA riots about a single African-American mother living in LA and that's a really rare story as well like so many filmmakers struggle particularly women struggle between that first feature and second feature mm-hmm. and I just think like Mustang is such a great calling card for a director who we're going to be watching for 30 40 years well, I hope so mm. and that's exciting and she's a mum as well she's got a s- small kids hmm. wow hate her yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's quite an achievement, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, makes me feel sort of exhausted <laughs> thinking that. Yeah, how's she achieved that? But I think you know, as you, you hit the nail on the head by sort of saying, it's really cleverly um, suspenseful the film, and there's an action element to it. Mm. 
So it's really like you know that she can deal with genre filmmaking, which, you know, most people, if you say to them, would you want to see a heist film or a, uh, you know, people would be like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, if it's got tension, it's got action and it's got suspense. And so by combining that with sort of socially powerful issues as well, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of smuggling in a message into a genre film, basically. It's the opposite of Whiskey Tango Foxtrot in so many ways, um, which is trying to be a message film and is actually the eat, pray, love of the Afghan conflict. Um, I don't even need to do a rant at this point, do I? I've just covered it. <laughs> but yeah, they, they acknowledge it. You know, there are a lot of references to, to Kim Barker, the Tina Fey character, who is, you know, based on a, on a real person, the fact that she's uh, on this white lady discovery, uh, per, you know, journey of self-discovery uh, in the middle of a Middle Eastern war zone. So, I, you know, there, there is a degree of self-awareness there. Did, you, uh, did that make up for any of, the, any of your problems, Sophie? Initially, I felt... Sorry, not, you your, know, not your problems, I'm saying it like... My you know, problems. You've got problems. Your this issues film is, is actually all about my problems. The most important <laughs> thing about this film is not the non-speaking characters in Burkas, it's my problems. Initially, I felt hopeful. So the film is adapted from Kim Barker's memoir by Robert Carlock, who is the co-writer of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt with Tina Fey, a show which I love, um, which has also, people have talked online about, is it just a show about white lady problems? Does it just use its non-white characters sort of for Kimmy's growth? But I think the show is is quite self-aware about that. It felt like initially it was, and initially it felt like it was doing something different. And Tina Fey always seems like such a self-aware person on screen. You know, her her face manages to convey like 17 levels of thinking. And she's always kind of slightly ashamed of what she's done or doing before she's even done it, which I just love watching her. But I felt like... I don't know, it's an American film at the end of the day and it got caught up in just being too good at those set pieces of action, culminating in a sequence which I will be showing to my students and possibly people on the bus just randomly for years to come, in which a photojournalist, a Glaswegian photojournalist played by famed Ouija Martin Freeman is kidnapped in Badakshan for no reason. And Tina Fey, they've been knocking boots and she goes back to Afghanistan basically to give a rousing speech to a Marine commander about how it would be really good publicity for him if he went and freed this idiot photojournalist who got himself kidnapped by disobeying all the rules and orders and fucking up. So she persuades the Marines to do this huge, who have no money, this huge expensive operation just so she can put them on telly, which will be good for her career. And then there's a sequence which takes so many shots from the assault on Tora Bora in Zero Dark Thirty, but they're not killing Osama bin Laden, they're rescuing Bilbo. Um, and it's set to Nilsson's Without You, and... So at first you're like, oh, she can't live with Martin Freeman. That's, that's so romantic. And she's got the Marines to put on night vision goggles and go and shoot human beings to rescue him. And then you realise it's meant to be like, we can't live without the Marines. 
Oh, really? Interesting. Interesting interpretation. Yeah, I mean, well, because they don't get together in the end, so she clearly can live without him, not to spoil the film. You know. But he can't yeah. live without her because he would have died if she hadn't come to rescue him with the cavalry behind her. Well, yeah, but I I don't know. I mean, I felt like, you know how we were saying, like, Batman versus Superman is, like, Trump cinema. This is very much Hillary cinema. It's like... <laughs> Before the film, there were also trailers for the new Ghostbusters and Bridget Jones's baby. And all three of them are about incompetent middle-class white women who become heroic kind of by accident. (laughs) And, you know, that's one thing when it's like a made-up New York City with ghosts. And it's another thing when that's like in the middle of an illegal invasion of Afghanistan. So Kim Baker, they actually call her Baker in the film, subtle difference. She Mm -hmm. learns and grows basically via her, you know, magical Afghan Fahim, who's her driver. That's literally more or less all we know about him. He was a doctor. And also the amazing Alfred Molina as an Afghan politician who's really corrupt and flirty, yet innocent and naive. Anyway, she goes back to America and she goes to find a Marine who she'd met in her first embed. And because she broadcast something that he said, he was transferred and he lost his legs in an IED explosion. So this is like, the film has these wild tonal shifts where it'll be like light handbag comedy. And then it's like, but seriously. And she feels, she feels really bad about it. So she does go, she goes and sees him and, you know, he dri- he's driving a tractor and he has a beautiful um, Southeast Asian wife. So we also know he's not a racist, um, who literally has one line, which is like, can I bring y'all some drinks? And he gives her the speech about how it's not her fault. And in fact, it's not America's fault. It's, you know, and then he goes through like the whole history of Afghanistan, but like, it's like the Russians' fault, it's the British Empire's fault. And then he just skips over that bit where like the, Af- the Americans trained the Mujahideen in the 1970s and then invaded the country. It's, you know, it's not her fault. And it's just so important to him that she understands that and is happy. And yeah, I was just crying with laughter by that point. I could be wrong, but I think there was an interview uh, I heard with, with the real Kim Barker where... I think I think I've got this right. That conversation actually happened where she was feeling guilty about it and the soldier basically said laid out the history of it and said whose fault is it really? So that that uh, that I think is based on uh, on reality. Wow. That makes it even weirder. <laughs> um somehow. And of course it's her, you know, it's her reported reality, but mm. Yeah, I felt like it was just it's like a massive recruiting film for the good old Marines. And Billy Bob Thornton turns in like one of his weirdest performances for years. Mm. Is that I think that's like a value neutral thing to say, Lee. Absolutely. I'll, You've I'll, made I'll me want to that. see it though. It's like one of these films that you think that actually because things are changing and people are trying to make more films about women and women's journeys, what we're getting is like really awkward um, films <laughs> where people are trying to crunch more than one genre together and sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not mm. and I just think it's really interesting to see like something so big budget that is obviously a really awkward struggle with 
you know, people not understanding how to do a narrative about a woman in that situation, which I think could be potentially hilarious, but in the wrong way. Like, I love watching, like, films that just get it wrong and you can just really laugh at it. (laughs) 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 But not in the way that they intend. (laughs) I, I think it does have the potential to become that kind of... I mean, you know, if you call a film What the Fuck... You are setting yourself up for that kind. And I think it thinks it's a satire. I think it has, like Lee said, aspirations to be as self-knowing as something like MASH. And Mm. for the first 20 minutes, I really thought this could be the feminist Good Morning Vietnam. Mm. And if it had let Tina Fey off the leash Mm. a bit more and let her, you know, maybe improvise some of her monologues in the way that they let Robin Williams do in Good Morning Vietnam... That's the thing about Good Morning Vietnam. You might have a character making mistakes, but it's not because he's ditzy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the problem that this film wouldn't have got made if they hadn't been able to sell the heroine as like, she does all these like crazy things like going to the Middle East, but don't worry, she's ditzy. That's what sells it, you know, and that's a bit of a shame, really. Because, of course, you have to have flawed characters, you know, all characters flawed. Yeah. But that particular flaw is the thing that makes it really difficult. It just ends up being damaging to all parties Mm. involved rather than a hilarious satire. And I think if they could just pick a different flaw for the female character to have, that would be preferable. As a man, I have lots of opinions. Uh, One of those opinions is that I don't like remakes. Art was not meant to be developed and reinterpreted. Art is a static singularity that must be left alone forever. I remember in uh, in 1918, I said to Cecil B. DeMille, I said, Cecil, don't remake The Squaw Man. The 1914 original is a classic. It's untouchable. Cecil, I said, you are raping my childhood. But he didn't listen to me, and so I played it cool, and I kept my mouth shut about remakes for the next century or so, happily going along with all remake concepts along the way. Do you want to change the samurai to gunfighters? Sure. Want to change those gunfighters to CGI bugs? No problem. But 2016 is when I got fed up. And it just happened to coincide with the new Ghostbusters film. Now, you may call me a misogynist. You may claim that my dislike of remake culture seems to have suspiciously coincided with an all-female reboot of an all-male ghost-busting team, and that the suspension of disbelief that allows me to accept ectoplasmic ghosts comically terrorising New York City somehow does not extend to accepting that women can hold proton guns. You may say that my subconscious acceptance that all pop culture has been geared towards my own worldview has made me unable to comprehend any gender or racial makeup outside of my my own. You may call this a very selective anger that betrays a sexism so deeply rooted that even I am unaware of the basis of my anger. But to that, I would simply say that, you know, I'm one of the nice guys. Stop playing the victim. Hashtag not all men. There's no coming back from that. Lee, I I think you might have broken the internet. That was my aim. I mean, I feel like I live in as much as possible an internet bubble where you know, I protect my delicate lady self by never encountering these opinions, except secondhand through, you know, my killjoy feminazi friends being irrationally angry about these men who have every right to hate women. The thing that gets me is it's like, well, this isn't consonant with the canonical universe, that kind of... (laughs) 
thing and it makes me feel like such a bad film viewer because I didn't notice that the guns are a different colour or whatever. <laughs> like, I should just go back to handbags and shoes because clearly I'm not a good enough film viewer. It, I don't I care enough. It depends enough. what you think a remake is about, really, because I'm quite a purist. Like, I, I don't like it when people remake things like Rosemary's Baby. I'm like, why do you need to do that? It was good enough the yeah. first time round. So I'm not a big fan of remakes generally, but I kind of think if you are going to do a remake, you need to have something that justifies that you're taking it a completely different direction. Mm. So if I go and see Midsummer Night's Dream again, which, you know, many people will say that they never want to see another version of Midsummer Night's Dream, but if they are going to do it, they should be putting a spin on it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that's what I think about remakes. I'm like, well, what's the point of making it at all unless you're going to do something completely different with it. That's mm. the only thing that will justify a remake for me. You're going to bring something new to my way of thinking about this story mm. or this, you know, whatever it is, this message or characters or whatever. Or alternately, all remakes should be done like Gus Van Sant's Psycho 94 <laughs> and should just be shot frame, frame. frame by frame, shot by shot, except for the new shot of Anne Hesch over the side of the bath, which <laughs> is not a referent to Janet Lee in the, in the original. It's like this really weird, almost subliminal flash. It's just like, yeah. fooled you, I'm still Gus Van Sant. Mm. So I love the idea of a sort of structuralist, remake of the original Ghostbusters where it's just like maybe slowed down to one frame a second like Douglas Gordon's Psycho um yeah I mean if you're gonna be purist do that but yeah I I mean I think so much of the the toxicity around the the Ghostbusters film in particular not to mention the uproar over there being two female leads in a row in this in Star Wars as if the craziest thing about that universe is two women doing proactive heroic things within a 60 year narrative but um it, it's that it's it seems to ever you know there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of people online who are waging what seems like a, a a war against this Ghostbusters film and they claim that it's because of they're you know being tired of remake culture but it seems very suspiciously timed and there is a toxicity uh, i mean there, there were quotes that came from um uh the the director um paul fag uh which he then apologized for because they were from some old interview where he said that there was this horrible side to nerd culture and i'm amazed that he felt he had to apologize for that because there is um but yeah it, it it's just it's starting to rear its head the more representation we get the, the more this is coming up. And I feel like a lot of these guys aren't genuinely upset about this. I honestly think, I mean, the internet has been great for sort of, you know, showing us views outside of our own, but it's also had the opposite effect at the same time where, you know, they're, they're being told ahead of time that they're being shut out of the conversation. And so they're reacting against that and getting each, each other riled up. I saw an announcement today that Sony have publicly said that they are worried about the box office for Ghostbusters. So I think mm. Paul Fagg probably apologised because the studio made him. And to me, this is like on a line, on a par with the whole, oh, I wasn't allowed to have a female villain in Iron Man 3 because the toy companies told me I couldn't. You know, Paul Fagg, massively successful director, did Bridesmaids, 
did um, Spy, did, you know, knocking them out of the park successes, working with Melissa McCarthy, he's worked with before. And it's like, it's this weird sense that actually 51% of the world's population don't count as an audience. The only audience the studio value are the, what they consider, and it's an outdated view to be their main audience. There was a Pew Centre study, sorry to get all technical, uh, a couple of years ago that showed the main ticket buyers, the most prolific ticket buyers in America are Latina women at 25 to 45. And they have like the, the widest range of what they'll go and see by themselves, with their partners, with their families, with their friends. But so this idea that your main ticket buyer is still 15 to 25 white man, actually that doesn't exist anymore. Those people are downloading the films illegally but they do buy the merch. So what Sony are actually saying is, we're not worried about the film. In fact, we just made the film to be an advert for a video game and a Burger King Happy Meal. And we're worried about those mm. tie-ins. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, th- those outdated views that it's it's for a specific type of audience, the, you know, 15 to 30-year-old males or whatever it is, is that seems to be an entrenched view that is is just you know you only need a few people at the top to hold on to that view like that the the marvel thing you were talking about there are so many reports that um ike uh pearl mutter um who was recently ousted from the marvel films was the one who was at the top saying you know female toys don't sell no female toys no no female characters or whatever and that apparently it's not. I'll put a link to the to the article in the show notes. But apparently it's not a coincidence that shortly after he left, suddenly they're talking about a Black Widow movie. Suddenly there are more Gamora toys or whatever. You know, um, it's just I think yeah that that sort of old guard opinion that's uh, you know needs to be slowly culled uh, at the very top of these studios. I'm just wondering how we can build an army of our own to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's actually what they're really afraid of? Like these online keyboard warriors that secretly, you know, they have all these fantasies of being an army and like being warriors and going and what, what, who are those, those awful, I can't even remember that, his name, the guy who was organising like these global men's meetups last year where he was like, we're going to get together in cities and we're going to go out and sexually harass women in groups. Um, I think he was Australian, Lee. I think oh, he should be really proud. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, it, you know, there was, like, all these women's groups who are like, we do martial arts and we're going to come and we'll be in the same place and we're going to stop you. And then they were like, okay, we're not going to do it now. So I feel like there is this secret fantasy that somehow there is this amazing secret army of women out there and I would like to know where it is because I want to join it. The thing is, I don't think it's necessary because, well, maybe it is necessary, but... You know, the, the fact is that these the men that are angry about this stuff are the least likely people to be in an army, <laughs> in a sense. What I mean is, like, you know, women are more likely to be talking to someone face-to-face and being a normal person. And I'm not saying that's... I'm not saying all men are not capable of that, but these particular men, yeah. that's the reason they're angry is because they've got this fantasy world in which they are all-powerful superheroes. But the reality is that they are hiding behind a keyboard, keyboard and probably quite socially inept and scared. And if they were in the real world and you just had a chat with them, they're probably just quite scared, lonely individuals. And 
I think that's the thing, isn't it? That you kind of, they found some solidarity with each other through the internet. And it's a sort of unnecessary group, really. Yeah. It's sort of built on fear yeah. and, and loneliness. It's not built on sort of um, any real power. It's built on a lack of power, I mm. think. So in a way, they're sort of these disenfranchised people. I'm not I'm sort of, it's not like I'm arguing how to save the nerd or whatever, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's where the aggression comes from. It's from fear, isn't it? It's not, yeah. Mm. It's not from... Um, an excess of power I think so it's like a fantasy that they're an army it's not it's not a reality and I think if you were going to build an army of women that would be you know it's it's not we don't need it what you know we we can do stuff by chatting about stuff normally <laughs> like, <laughs> in a rational way can't we <laughs> that's what that, that is my idea of an army you know just like rational chats yeah, rational yeah. chatting. <laughs> which, which is basically what this podcast is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Alice, please tell us which filmmaker have you selected for your Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month? I selected Jim Henson. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us about your, your love, of, uh, love of Jim Henson and its origins. Well, you know, I think everybody loves Jim Henson in the sense of, like, they grew up with... Sesame Street and the Muppets and he's this kind of in a sense almost puppet-like iconic figure of this sort of bearded hippie that was incredibly kind to people and had got a little voice like you know uh sort of loved everyone and everyone loved him and he died young and but I'm sort of talking about Jim Henson in the sense of his later works which I think during his lifetime, he probably never had an appreciation of what a cult sensation those films were going to be. Mm. I watched a documentary about him, actually, and films like Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal, which completely blew my mind when I was a young child. They didn't do well at the box office, and he was incredibly sad about that because he saw it as representing the darker, uh, more sophisticated side to his creativity and the sense that that wasn't, those films weren't as successful as the Muppets stuff um, he was quite sad about. But I think now those films have got such a cult following and to me, like, really, I don't know, really um, inspired me creatively. And also it's such an anathema to our CGI'd world that we live in now in terms of cinema and, you know, everything that he made was handcrafted and... Um, animatronics you know I used to want to work at the Jim Henson workshop when I was a kid mm -hmm. just because I was obsessed with all of those creatures and the worlds that he built and created um, and so I'm speaking up for for Jim Henson really in his uh, more gothic era. Mm. <laughs> I think we do have an idea about children and children's entertainment that has got more and more conservative. Mm. Um, it was interesting to read an interview with Frank Oz after he'd had a very small cameo role in Inside Out. I mean, he's just a voice in it for a couple of seconds. Yeah. And thinking about that shift from films like Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal, which really are about these young characters taking these huge risks mm. in these incredibly anarchic, dark, dangerous um, in Labyrinth, quite sexualized sexual worlds, mm. and then thinking about the Pixar 
sort of code <laughs> like everything is brightly colored there can be a bit of sadness but actually the biggest journey you can lower, go on is to learn to be a little bit sad and to think that the same person who did the Muppets and Fraggle Rock and Sesame Street which in and of themselves are incredibly anarchic they're mm. really hippie they're really like anti-capitalist they're always yeah. full of stuff about like community first and living in a trash can well, they're kind of born, born from sort of 1950s surrealism as well if you look at jim henson's early animation stuff a lot of it comes from this 50s 60s um surrealist kind of background so some of his short films yeah well i've only seen some brief glimpses of it but he used to do a lot of animation because animation and puppetry is very closely related Usually, like, Jan Spankmeyer is one of my yes. heroes as well. Um, but, you know, a lot of that, um, a lot of animation, a lot of puppetry is, has its roots in surrealism. And I think in Eastern Europe, the reason that they used to use animation was it was a way around censorship. So mm-hmm. you could use surrealism and animation without anyone getting into trouble. And I just, I don't know, without talking to Jim Henson, whether those people were his influences, but... I think he smuggled a lot of quite anarchic messages through doing that with a sock with two ping pong balls stuck on it, you know. And, it, you know, a lot of the subversiveness comes from those roots, I think, of, um, you know, from much more of a left field place, a much mm. more left field creative place. Mm. I have long been trying, well, long, for like since the last, so the first reboot of The Muppets came out been trying to get the word communism into the Oxford Dictionary <laughs> to describe exactly that kind of 1960s, like, civil rights, hippie, anti-capitalist leftism. Yeah. But th- this really joyous form of it, like, that the Fraggles, you know, they dance their cares away. They're, they just want to make poetry and have parties and... yeah go on adventures and then talk about their adventures and talk about their feelings and the fact that he was you know he was producing his work rate was absolutely unbelievable he was Mm -hmm. producing the Muppet show then he was producing Fraggle Rock and then Sesame Street he was producing the Muppet films even when he wasn't directing them he Mm. was voicing them and he found time to direct co-direct with Frank Oz who was the um Bert his Ernie um, literally, mm. and the Miss Piggy to his Kermit, like creating two of the most iconic couples in television history. They made three feature films together. Like that—that's not a hippie dance your cares away. But they must—they had so much fun doing it. That's what comes across mm. from interviews and documentaries. I saw a documentary called Being Elmo about the guy who took over as Elmo on a uh, Sesame Street in the like in the 21st century and he talks about meeting Jim Henson as a young puppeteer and it just seemed like it was a really fun place to work. It's also that sense of like making and doing yourself which is obviously like a childish thing but it's also like that kind of hippie ethos of doing pottery or you know everything that he was doing was about his own crafting and his own hands so it's that opposite thing of being a filmmaker who outsources a bunch of CGI to someone else it's everything that he was doing he could make it he could play lots of different characters and bring those into material existence if he wanted to so it was kind of that I can kind of totally understand that because I started out in theatre myself as well like doing devised theatre and I love that sense of being able to communicate an idea 
yourself visually you know through just one person and props and and I think it's a sort of style of filmmaking which is now disappearing mm. which is that sort of you know I've just made a low budget feature film and I, I keep describing it to people as like a handmade pot like it's not perfect but the things that are interesting about it are the quirks mm. and though that's actually the thing that makes it a USP so it's almost like artisanal mm. <laughs> filmmaking <laughs> in a sort of sense like a artisanal loaf of bread or something that's what I feel like it was filmmaking in that sense and that's what I was so struck by with things like the dark crystal that you know there's just one scene where there's a load of eyeballs that are growing in the ground yeah no I don't know what that that's that's labyrinth isn't it but there's a similar sort of thing where he just spent hours creating this vegetation which comes to life in both films Mm. and I just remember it so well and how often would you have those ideas if you weren't having to physically make them? And I would argue that any amount of CGI, you're not stumbling upon these sort of crazy weird ideas because you've just found a box of eyeballs, spare eyeballs in in a cupboard somewhere. So I don't know, to me, that's that's the sort of thing that I really caught my imagination. And I, I don't know what parallel of that would be there's probably lots of children's theatre which still operates in that kind of way. There's, but actually, you know, taking essentially a theatrical medium like puppetry and making that a mainstream on-screen success is just quite extraordinary, really. Mm. He, he's, he's got this, like, such an amazing worldview, like you say, and, of course, he's best known for, you know, Muppet Show and, and, and Sesame Street. But um, Jim Henson, the director, is someone who's not doesn't seem to be as recognised as Jim Henson, the puppeteer. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the short film Cube, a made-for-TV movie, which doesn't have any, any puppetry or anything in it, but is just the most extraordinary, uh, mind-blowing film, a very, very surreal... What's his name? Vincent Natalie? Would, would he have seen this before making mm-hmm. Cube? I don't know whether Vincenzo Natalie saw Henson's NBC experiments in television, um, The Cube, before he made his film The Cube. But the title suggests that it's at very least an homage, and it was like it was Natalie's student film, and he does take it in a much more clearly, you know, postmodern science fiction direction. But those that the Cube and Timepiece, which is one of Henson's other quite long, longer short films, mm. they have this kind of this incredible intensity, and he performs in both of them. They're almost sort of, I feel like a lot of his shorter work is work about the creative process. Like it's an insight into how his brain works. He made a very short film called Ripples, which is about how those kind of associational ideas that Alice was talking about happen. And it's just someone, you know, dropping a pebble into a a sugar cube into a coffee. And then that leads to this whole chain of visual associations um, Mm. that move really, really quickly. And so he just seems like someone who knew what the, the creative process was, his own creative process, really well and in depth. And then when he gets a chance to tell that over a longer story, first in Timepiece and The Cube, and The Cube is like a real classic 70s paranoia piece, like nothing is real, I'm in an experiment. And then in Labyrinth in the Dark Crystal, where it's about like, how do children's imaginations work? What happens when you go into that classic quest narrative? Mm. And um, you move through this kind also, of the, the, landscape. The power of fantasy as well. That's what I always loved about 
that character in, in, in Labyrinth was a female character who wasn't obsessed with romance. I mean, there yeah. is romance as a, a notion within the film, but it's more that she's in love with fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I always really um, gelled with that. That really, I understood that. Like someone who doesn't want to live in the real world, they want to live in a fantasy. And to have a female character, and we were just talking about internet nerds who would rather be living in a superhero film. Well, I think Sarah in Labyrinth is the female equivalent of that. Totally. Um, But, you know, just like valuing imagination, valuing fantasy and and recognising that there is an important, it's an important element of being human. You need a sort of creative realm, a creative space in your head. Mm. And I think that works because he's got such a respect for children he doesn't talk down to them i mean i i, I always mm. i always think of it like when you're a kid um oh no actually there was a friend of mine was really shocked when woody loses his arm in in toy story and he was really he said oh that's mm. going to be really shocking and I, I said no i don't think kids see it like that i think they just say oh he's lost his arm we as adults mm. know the body horror of it but kids are kind of fine mm. with that uh, and and I think he had such an understanding of that because he, he never sort of lost that worldview. And so he was sort of the perfect person to make things for kids to, to sort of talk to them at their own level like he was one of them. But also that horror is part of of life as well. Yeah. And, you know, one of the ways that you deal with that is by showing it in a safe medium of fantasy, of film. And, I you know, I think we discussed Sophie about how Labyrinth is kind of like a horror film for kids. Mm-hmm. There's an element of it which is like Hellraiser or something like that. She invokes a demon and he comes and whisks her away and then she has to go through all these trials. So, I mean, a lot of people... It's funny because I've like live-tweeted um, Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and it is funny when you look at the tweets, like people going, my God, I'd forgotten how twisted this word was. I'm watching it with my five-year-old and she's terrified. Yeah. I'm sort of going, well, it's good. Why not? She'll be all right. <laughs> you know, I, I liked being scared as a yeah. kid. I mean, you know, luckily that I wasn't ever terrorised in my real life by horrible things happening to me. But, you know... The, the reality of that being part of life is was shown to me through fiction and you know old fairy tales are really really dark as well I think it's it's all has a function so you know this Pixar thing of like oh no, I like Pixar you know I think they're brilliant but this sort of Pixar thing of making sure it's all fluffy and nice and that kids don't get scared by it I'm like well why mm. what what's the point <laughs> they should be scared a little bit sometimes why not you know absolutely yeah, I'm I'm still scared of the I can't I'm too scared to say their names, the Beatle soldier things in the dark uh, Yes, Yeah, I was ter- I was terrified of the Skeksis. Mm. Like when the, yeah. the Emperor dies. Sorry, spoilers, but it does happen <laughs> at the beginning. Um I was like hiding behind the cinema chair. It was one of the first films that I saw in the cinema. So it completely blew my mind. And had a really long-lasting impact on me. But, you know, when he sort of crumbles to dust. Oh. That terrifying. It's such an... As an adult, you're like, that's such an amazing special effect. And all the appearances and disappearances and crumbling in that film. But it's really... Because it's really slow. It's Mm. like his jaw falls off. And you're like, oh, okay, I can handle that. 
I understand that, but it just it's relentless. It I mean, that is classic going. vampire. Yeah, you know, the way that they used to shoot vampires dying, like Christopher Lee or whatever. They'd sort of have him disintegrating in the sun. You know, the sunlight would fall on him. He's got a stake through his heart, whatever, and he'd disintegrate. So they're using like the same technology, I'm sure, of you know filming over a long time and something disintegrating in whatever way. Mm. So again, it's like a horror technique that they're using. For children, for a children's film, which I think is brilliant, <laughs> just shows why I'm so twisted now that I know <laughs> films that I know. But I think there is a whole generation that grew up with Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, and they weren't successes at the cinema, but they were part of the video, the VHS video boom revolution. Yeah. And you know, we had a video of Labyrinth that we completely wore out to pieces yeah. re-watching and re-watching and learning all the songs and so I think there's a whole generation of us who are like that's what we want yeah and well, apparently apparently there um there just weren't enough children's films being made at the time as well so if you went to go and get a kid's film Labyrinth was just there yeah <laughs> um when you were sick of watching Wizard of Oz or another film that's like 60 years old or whatever mm. you know um that was one of the few films that were out there to watch. And now, you know, people have realised the power of kids' films, that, you know, it's a massive box office um, certainty, basically. It's a safe bet. Um, but at the time, there weren't so many films. So that, that really tied into um, why Labyrinth became a classic, mm. uh, of people renting it out, basically. I think it's... There's something really interesting to me about, you know, it's like the early 1980s in America. It's supposedly like this, it's dawn in America, this big Reaganite, hopeful Wall Street moment. And you get these four films that emerge, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Never Ending Story and Return to Oz, mm. which where someone, when I know who will get to direct a children's film, the editor of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's so. I would include Legend and well, Legend, which of. is an early Ridley Scott mm. film, and Ghostbusters, which I was taken to the cinema to see. I think I was six or seven, and it was considered a children's film. Mm. And I think the librarian at the beginning came <laughs> rushing out of the books, and I sort of lost it <laughs> and I had to go out of the cinema. But then came back in because I was like, no, 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 that's really, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And I think about it; she's still my favourite character in the original. Yeah. Ghostbusters. when they did the remake, I actually, when they were doing the remake, I actually tweeted Paul Feig to say, "Can I play the librarian?" Yeah. <laughs> and you are you're under a non-disclosure agreement. You just <laughs> but, I am not the librarian. I don't think there is a librarian. There should have been. I like the librarian as well. Just this this group of like these these, and I don't know whether it's because they were all the people who made those films had come out of the that sixties and then looking at the eighties, like, going, "It's so dark. Our children are doomed. Let's give them some stories to prepare them." I don't think so. I think if you look back on the box office lack of success. Those were people who were quirky filmmakers who were being allowed to make their passion pieces, which, you know, were their quirky, creative, you know, their love stories to creativity, basically. And no one wanted to see it. And then you fast forward 20 years and, you know, one of the most successful trilogies of all time is Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Just using very similar aesthetics of like Arthur Rackham-esque uh, set design and art. 
So I kind of think there's been huge changes in what the appetite is of the audience. Like we really crave fairy tale. Like look at Game of Thrones. Would that have been as hugely successful? I, I don't know. I just th- I think it's generally a, a change in what people want to see. Mm. It's Jim Henson's world. Was a bigger thing back then. I think that when you think about the majority of films being made. They weren't fantasies or superhero films. They were kind of like dramas and things, you know, and a lot of kind of realism. And, like, it's just that now it's like, I don't know, maybe it's because we're all in a state of arrested development. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we were all just totally brainwashed by the Muppets and Labyrinth as children. I think so. I think the seed was planted very cleverly. By Jim Henson in a, uh, an early age. I also used to love the storyteller. Do you remember? I that? love the storyteller. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, not a film, but absolutely amazing. One of the boldest pieces yeah. of television. Mm. Um, he co-created it with Anthony Minghella, who went on yeah. to make The English Patient, and yeah. he directed one of the scariest episodes. It's like, hi, children, what are we watching today? Let's watch The Soldier and Death. Yes, with the death in a bag. With oh death God. in a bag. And that was like Gollum, wasn't it? I mean, if I'm, I'm sure yeah. Peter Jackson a uh, a Jim Henson fan, film fan. But... I, yeah, I just loved all of those things. But what I was thinking about when I was watching this documentary about Jim Henson was that he put a soul into all of the creatures that he created. Mm. He breathed life into it. And I remember some um, the actress who plays the mum in E.T. talking about how the puppet of E.T. had a soul. Mm. And even she slightly believed it, like Drew Barrymore really thought that the creature was real and they yeah. kept, they maintained that. And and even when E.T. died, the actress, I think, I can't remember, D something or other, she, yeah. she sort of said to Drew Barrymore, you know it's not real, you know it's not real. But she said, but in the back of my mind, this thing had a soul to it. And I do think that's the thing when you've got these physical manifestations of a character, you've got a puppet, it's almost like slightly witchcraft voodoo sort of thing that you put a little bit of yourself into that creature and it becomes real. So it's like that Anthony Hopkins film Magic, it's, you know, mm. with the ventriloquist doll yeah. um, that you've brought, brought this thing to life. And I think Jim Henson put a bit of himself into each of those creatures and that's why they're so memorable. And you don't feel like you're watching puppets. You you feel like they're real characters. And the storyteller, like that, you know, death was just this amazing creation. And I can't think of any other um, thing where I would remember the characterization so powerfully. Yeah. yeah. Um, like if it had been CGI or whatever, I just, I just don't think it would have been as powerful. Yeah, there are so many um, puppets in. I'm sorry, Muppets in, in Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, where, you know, you forget that every little movement you're watching has to have been created by someone. It's not just someone reacting. Like, I love at the beginning of Labyrinth when all the goblins are listening uh, to see if she's going to mm. wish. Mm-hmm. And there's that guy who goes, did she say it? And they'll go, shh. And he goes, Ooh. And he looks And he, he looks genuinely embarrassed. Like, it's just an off-the-cuff reaction from an actor. And I'm like, no, no, that's a, that's a puppet. What am I thinking? <laughs> I watched um, this documentary where it was in the um, Jim Henson workshop and this guy, a technician, 
um, was talking about how the aim of the puppetry is that it should be one person to every puppet, which isn't always possible because, you know, there's like one set of animatronics for the eyebrows and then another for the eyes and then another for the hands and that, you know, it's not always possible for one person to operate one puppet, but he says that's always the aim. Mm. They always want to have one person imbuing that character with a single uh, will or intention or set of actions, which I think is really interesting as yeah. an actor. You know, they're trying to bring it as close to being an actor as possible. And there's definitely something about the actors. Whereas in CGI, I mean, I think Peter Jackson has found this way to do it through the motion capture. So there are actors interacting with actors, but so much of, there was some amazing animatics version of the Doctor Strange trailer that someone behind the scenes had just got all the green screen versions of the stuff in the trailer together and just showed you, oh, it's just like four actors in harnesses doing a tiny jump mm. or falling yeah. over something that isn't there. Yeah. Well, for for Jennifer Connolly and David Bowie and Labyrinth, they were acting with those those puppets hand to hand. And I was reading an interview with Frank Oz where he was talking about a scene in one of the films where I think it's with Diana Rigg where she slaps Miss Piggy and she's <laughs> like, oh, I can't I can't slap a puppet. And he was like, No, that's the most important thing with when you're working with puppets is touch. The puppets have to touch each other and touch things and the humans have to touch them. Yeah. And that, that move from the dark crystal where everything is is puppets and it mm. all belongs in that one fantasy world and it's like a very Campbellian, the hero's journey. And it's like, it's so perfect. But then to Labyrinth, which is this much more like messy and okay, as you say, different because it has a female hero and because it's like humans and puppets interacting. Like to me, it has sort of a different order of reality to the Dark Crystal. Mm. Like when David Bowie's throwing the goblins in the air and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> My, my goddaughter has refused to watch any more of it after encountering the fireies. She's like, that is disgusting. No. <laughs> they are quite scary. And yeah, that, there's, there's something about that humanness of it that they, like Jan Swankmeyers do, they reflect back to humanness to us mm. that I think very little in contemporary cinema really dares to do. Mm. Good lead to next month's filmmaker, who is also a master of the eyeball. Yes, from one labyrinth to another, but we'll uh, we'll leave that as a tease. Um, Alice, thank you so much for joining us this month. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Give me a mummy, it's a babe. Babe with the power. Oh, 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 oh,